podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. वेस्ट इंडीज पर शानदार विजय के बाद भारत ने तीन टेस्ट सीरीज में इंग्लैंड से मुकाबला किया India were a joke not long after they started test cricket. Not because they weren't talented. That's just not true. Also, they weren't the worst team. New Zealand clearly had them beat there. But because they took the very worst of English cricket, the amateur class structure, and allowed one of the worst international cricketers ever to lead them on their second tour of the UK. And it's quite odd because India actually had the most local players actually playing cricket. New Zealand, South Africa, Australia and the West Indies, they had a lot of English players. But that also includes the people who funded the tours, where the Maharajas would stump up the cash and that of course brought problems. Maharaj Kumar of Vijayanagaram or Vizi as he was known, was a specialist number 8 batter. The kind of spot that is only ever kept for people who cannot actually play the game. Vizi was an incredibly rich man and he loved cricket. He had a cricket ground in his palace. and he paid great cricketers to come and play there. He was a throwback to the rich Englishman of a century before, and like many of them, Vizzy thought he was better than he was. He was wrong, very wrong. He was given the title of deputy vice captain of their first tour, but pulled out because he wasn't made skipper. And so he worked very hard to get into a position of power inside Indian cricket. He had a Machiavellian scheme where he took down his rivals. And for the next tour of England in 1936, Vizzy was in charge. India had a few decent players in their squad, probably none better than Lala Amanath, an all-rounder who could bat in the top order and bowl decent medium pace. That sounds like an ideal player for English conditions. It really was. Amanath scored India's first ever 100. and Vizzy sent him home before the first test. Amanath had dared question the word of his dogshit ordinary captain. And Vizzy really was that bad. He had no idea how to field. He actually didn't really understand the fielding placements. He misused every bowler he had. The batting order changed without any rhyme or reason. Players were picked based on who they abused at the breakfast table. And the rumor has it that he offered a trip to Paris to one player to run out VJ Marchant. In the warm-up games he would offer gifts to the opposition hosts in order to get helpful bowling come his way. In his 3 tests, batting at 9, he averaged 8.25, and that completely flattered him. 9 was probably too high for him. Well, actually, being in the team was too high. He was probably a decent number 9 in your local club team, but you wouldn't pick him unless he paid for your club rooms, which is I suppose kind of what he did. He bankrolled that tour and the tour before. And during the 1936 tour, Vizzy was knighted because that's what happened to men like him. But it's a photo that I remember him for. It was from a tour game against Kent, and keeping up at the stumps is Les Ames, the first great wicketkeeper batter. He averaged 40 in tests as a wicketkeeper, meaning he was making 25% more runs than his nearest keeper of his era, and he's the only keeper with 100 first-class hundreds. Ames is up at the stumps because he's keeping to Titch Freeman. who took 3776 first class wickets which if it sounds like a lot it is a lot it is in fact the most in history and sandwiched between these two incredible players is a man who appears to have walked on the field assuming that a free lunch was being served in this photo he was standing in a way that no cricketer stands and he's mid pitch like he's attempting a single before the ball has even been bowled and the ball's only just hit the stumps and we can tell that because the bail is still moving 
and yet he's in the least athletic-looking position possible. This is a man who has lost his car keys, not an international sportsman. And Vizzy was doing this entire thing with a cravat on. Indian cricket had incredible talent even then, but it was being led by a crown prince. Welcome to Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. This is Series 3, and in this season we'll be looking at the times when cricket nations had their first big win over England. Episode 3 is India, and we'll be looking at the first time they beat England in England. We don't talk about this much now, but at one point, India was a hockey country. And perhaps no country has ever dominated a sport like India did with hockey. It was really in 1983 when cricket took over and became a form of national exceptionalism. Partly because their hockey glory sort of ended when the grass was replaced by astroturf in that sport. But also, dominating a sport like hockey has limited appeal. No Australian says that the hockey captain is the second most important job in the country. English hockey players are not given knighthoods simply for existing. And CLR James never said, what do they know of hockey who only hockey know? And it wasn't even just hockey. Calcutta, or Kolkata, was known as a football city, even though it had Eden Gardens. And it wasn't that cricket wasn't ever in India. It had always been there in the background. But they hadn't had massive success as a team. In their first 120 matches, they had won 16. And of those 16, seven of them were against a very poor New Zealand side. They had won against England in this time. In 51-52, they won at Madras, now Chennai, to make the series one all. Polly Umragar made an incredible 100, and India only needed to bat once. It's fair to say that Umragar was an incredible batsman. He made 1,200s, averaged 42, and had almost 1,000 runs more than any other Indian when he retired. But while Umragar should have gone down as a legend, his legacy was more complicated by what happened when he toured England in 1952. That tour happened to overlap with a new kind of bowler making his debut, and Umragar was the first scalp to fiery Fred Truman. He was fast, skillful, and relentless. And it's possible that cricket had had bowlers this fast before, but perhaps not this quick and skilled. Truman was the first bowler to pass 300 test wickets. But against India, it wasn't so much about how many, but how. At one stage out of Truman's last 10 wickets, nine of them were bowled. Truman now to Mackay. And he's caught behind the wicket. He's caught behind the wicket. And Truman has taken five wickets for no runs. But it was his first victim, Umragar, who stained it the most. In four tests, he batted seven times and managed 43 runs. But it wasn't the wickets that were the worst. It was the fact that he was backing away. It led to a famous line from Tony Locke, who was fielding close on the leg side. I say, Polly, do you mind going back? I can't see the bowler. The stain of that tour stayed with Indian cricket for a long time. England saw them as soft, and India felt ashamed. But that's also unfair. Truman didn't exist in India. He was the culmination of years of professional cricket in England, and India was suddenly in front of something that they'd never come across before. At Headingley, that led them to lose four wickets before they'd scored a single run. And while Truman didn't end Umragar's career, he certainly left a big mark on it. But Umragar would still go on to be an Indian captain, even though the backing way was always there. And the thought in English cricket at the time was, if India's most hyped batter was afraid and moving the square leg, why take India too seriously? After the win in 1952, England didn't tour India for another 10 years, and the next time they arrived, it was 1961-62. The first three tests were drawn, and then the little-known Salim Durrani took 18 wickets across two tests to destroy England. 
Durrani took 24% of his career wickets in those two tests. I mean, think about this. This was India's first win in a series over England, but it's not really what we remember when we think of India's first defeat of England. And that's because even within India, there was a real thirst for a win away from home. But it was hard enough to play England as it was. Compared to Australia, who almost never played new teams, England looked quite good, but they still didn't play the smaller teams that often. So after that win in 1952, England played India in four series over the following 19 years. Australia played India in six series from 1930 until 1971. The first one wasn't until 1947. If you're thinking this sounds familiar with today, well, you're right. Teams need to play against the best opposition so they can improve. And India and New Zealand were definitely held back by how rarely they went up against the good teams. But by the late 60s, it was clear that the Indian team was very good. They had won against every other test nation they were allowed to go up against, defeating the West Indies in early 1971. Sadly, South Africa wouldn't play against them because of the colour of their skin. But as good as India was, England were the best team in the world in 1971. They had just won the Ashes in Australia, and roughed them up a bit too. West Indies' reign was still a few years away. South Africa had now been banned, or at least ostracised, by the few teams they played. Pakistan and New Zealand were a decade away from being proper test teams. And it wasn't just that England were good. India had struggled touring there as well. This was very early in the days of international cricket as we now know it. So most of these Indian players just didn't travel that often. India had been to Australia twice in 40 years. So the difference in conditions was far tougher to overcome. India played 19 tests in England and they lost 15. And that included 11 of their last 12. And the one that they had drawn was helped by rain. India weren't terrible in their 67 series. They lost 3-0, but one loss was by 6 wickets and another by 132 runs. These were not crushing defeats. And when you factor in they had to bowl without seamers due to injury, so their keeper, Budi Kundaram, had to open the bowling, you can kind of forgive that loss, even if they just weren't as good as the English. In the summer of 71, England won the toss in all three tests, and there probably had been times when that alone would have been enough to beat India. This wasn't like that. India fought. Almost literally when English bowler John Snow clashed with Sunil Gavaskar in the first test. England scraped past 300 and so did India. England set them 183, but India slumped to 145 for 8 before the rain came in. And it should be noted that India's tail was comically thin. The next test was all England. They beat India with Ray Illingworth making 100 with the tail, rolled India for around 200, then knocked up a lead of 420 and had them 65 for 3 with a day to play. Problem was that the final day was not played due to rain. So in this three-test series, it meant that India still had a chance of victory with the third and final match. Today, that would be a big deal. It would be the most talked about sporting event, well, certainly in those two countries, but maybe in the world. But at the time, in the UK, so little was thought of India that the series was barely advertised. If you think the ashes overshadows the rest of tests in England now, it was 10 times worse at this point. And if anyone did actually think about this series, they still would have thought that India had only drawn the first two tests because of the weather. At the Oval, England went for India, scoring very quick. They were bowled out in the last over of the day, making 355. India took three of their famed quartet into that test. S. Venkatrathan, B.S. Chandrasekhar, and Bishan Singh Bedi. All of them went at over three runs and over, which was thermonuclear for the time. It seemed like England knew on the oval pitch that the spinners would be the biggest danger. The second day was a washout, probably meaning that any chance of a well-attended match would be gone, as again it looked like it was heading for a draw. On day three, India's top order collapsed, but they fought back and their tail rallied. 
But it was an odd innings. Seven batters making it to double figures, and not one passing Farouk Engineer's stoic 59. And it was a turgid innings. Basil Dolivira bowled seven overs of his part-time wobblers, taking one for five. But England's best bowlers were the spinners. Derek Underwood delivered 25 overs and went for 49 runs. Ray Illingworth bowled almost 35 overs, taking five for 70. It meant that the Indians could never quite get away, so even after fighting back and almost the entire lineup getting a start, they could never get in front. At the end of the first innings, England had a lead of 71. And when a favoured team who is at home and has had the better of rain-affected draws pulls ahead like this in a match that has already had weather as well, big crowds generally don't turn up. This was already a tough sell. India was just not seen as much of an opponent by the English fans, and only 17,000 people had turned up over the first two days. In that second innings, the England openers looked fairly comfortable at the start, and their lead was approaching 100 when Brian Luckhurst drove straight, and Chandrasekhar got a finger on the ball, meaning that John Jameson was run out. If Chandrasekhar's fingertips opened the door, then the rest of his digits did far more damage. The last two balls before lunch was when it all started. Chandrasekhar had a faster ball. The derby-winning horse that summer was called Mill Reef, and his teammates had taken to calling his faster ball after that young horse. Just after lunch, second last ball, one of his teammates told him to try the Mill Reef. This is what Chandrasekhar said later. I had thought of bowling something else, but halfway through my run-up, I thought I might as well give it a try, as he had asked. So I bowled the quicker one, and Edridge's bat was still in the air when the ball was hitting middle stump. The following ball, Keith Fletcher squeezed one to short leg, and India had taken three wickets before England's lead had passed 100. At lunch, something even more bizarre happened. That day it was Ganesh Jatuthi, a day when Hindus celebrate one of their most popular deities, Lord Ganesh. And like a T20 match where there is a motocross at the innings break, at lunch, Chessington Zoo provided Bella, a three-year-old elephant. Bella waddled around the outfield to entertain the crowd in homage to Ganesh's elephant head. Of course, there was a far bigger elephant in the oval, the one that now suggested that India could win this game and perhaps steal the series. After lunch, Indian captain Ajit Awadika made some aggressive moves with the field. Awadika had not planned on being Indian captain. At one point, he'd had to convince Tiger Patudu to even keep him in the side at all. But one thing that had always been important to Wadika was to show how much India had changed. Playing in Jamaica before the England tour, he was hit by Uten Dow and tore a blood vessel in his hand. Yet he battered on, because he didn't want India to still be seen as soft. At Lord's on the first test of this tour, when he walked to the wicket, Jon Snow bounced him repeatedly. And Wadika hooked him. As much as anything to show his teammates that it could be done. Wadika continued that sort of fight with his field. He brought all the catches around the back, leg slips, dueling short legs, short cover traps, and deep slips for Chandra's Mill Reef ball. And Wadika had the perfect tools for this kind of field. An outfielder who took 53 catches in just 27 matches, almost two a match. Eknath Solkar averaged 25 with the bat and bowled occasionally, but he was possibly the best short leg fielder of all time. Most players when fielding in close in his day without protection turned their bodies to shield themselves. Solkar would face the batter the entire time. It was his fearlessness and recklessness, but it worked for him. But he was also a very smart cricketer. According to Wadika, he did something very weird with Alan Knott. It's clear that Knott was one of the greatest keeper batters ever. And when he came out to bat, Solkar took the bails off. Knott was known as someone who marked his guard with a bail, so on this occasion he had to use his foot. Look, it probably didn't make that much difference, but it was showing how much India felt like they were belonging. And not only lasted four balls before he was caught at short leg by Solka. The bowler was Chandra. And it's worth talking about Chandra here for a moment. He had polio when he was a kid, and this had withered his right arm. 
perhaps similar to Shane Warne's leg problem and Murali's double-jointed elbow. What may have been dismissed as a mild deformity seemed to end up more like a superpower when it came to their spin. At that point, there had been two kinds of leg spinners, very slow bowlers like Aubrey Faulkner or Clary Grimmett, and the fast-medium spinners like Richie Benno and Tiger Bill O'Reilly. Chandra's hero was Benno, and he tried to match his energy at the crease. And that seemed to be his special skill, his frenzied last-second whip, which meant that the ball left the pitch with energy. A good delivery from him was just better because you had less time to react to it, like Rashid Khan or Shahid Afridi. India had more reliable spinners, but they just didn't have anyone that devastating. The joke in Indian cricket at that time was that Chandra's faster ball was quicker than most of their seniors. And on that day, it's worth noting that Wadaka, who had a good record against Chandra in domestic cricket, admitted that had he faced him that day, he thinks he would have made a duck. The second ball, the afternoon session from Chandra, took De Oliveira's edge and just beat slip. He'd be dropped again shortly after. And it should be pointed out that for the longest time, England's middle order had saved them. It was an incredible lineup. De Oliveira, Keith Fletcher, not Illingworth, but it was only Dolly who made it to double figures. It was one of those collapses where a team seems to lose a wicket every 10 runs, like it's preordained. Venkat took two for 44. Biddy only had one over and took one for one. Chandra, six for 38. What an over from Chandra. That must be lunch. Well, it's gone up in there and it should be a catch. And very easily and comfortably taken by a substitute fieldsman, Giant. Never in any trouble at all. And he's out. He's caught back bad. A fine catch. Alan Nod is out. Salka's done it again. Diving in from that forward short left position. And he's caught and bowled. Full toss, driven straight back at Chandrasekhar. Oh, he's out! Oh, what a good catch! Venkat at slip, and look at Chandra. What a day, what a day for India. Yeah. caught and bowled! Just as the England captain went, so now Jon Snow. He's hit it away uppishly, and it could be out. She's caught. Underwood is caught by Mankad. A nice running catch. He had about 10 yards, 15 yards to run in. And he's out LBW. Now India needed 173 to win. Considering how the spinners had bowled in the previous two innings, India still had to overcome Ray Illingworth and the man they called deadly, Derek Underwood. But India had something too. Sonal Gavaskar opening the batting. He would make 10,122 runs in tests, batting like nothing else mattered. But while he had all those runs in test cricket, he didn't make a single run in this chase. Jon Snow had him for a duck. Ashok Mankad opened at the other end, and he faced 74 balls for his 11 runs. Dilip Sardesai made 40 from 156 balls. Gundapa Vishwanath made 33 from 171. India were trying to climb the biggest mountain they'd ever encountered in Test cricket, and no one was in a rush. They scored at 1.7 runs per over. The only batter scoring at a normal rate was Wadika, who had a strike rate of 40, again trying to lead by example. And he might have won the game himself, but he was run out first ball of day five. But a bit like the first innings, the batters kept stepping up to chip in, the complete opposite to backing away. 
And finally, it was Farouk Engineer who remained not out as Sayed Abid Ali, India's number eight, cut a four, and then was carried off the ground by Farouk. Vijay ka prahar, Abid Ali ka square cut. Bharat ne char wicket se Vijay paai, rubber jeeta. Inside the change room, Wadaka had taken a nap, partly due to superstition. And while he was asleep, India won their first ever test in England. And it was their captain, Ken Barrington, who woke Wadaka to let him know that they had won. Wadaka replied with, I always knew we'd win. Right now, this probably sounds a little bit like a humble boast. But this was the first group of Indian cricketers who'd grown up in an independent India. Their families lived through British oppression, and they had defeated England at the most English of sports. In this way, cricket helped shape India's nationalism, its very identity. Think about that quote, I always knew we'd win, every time you see an Indian fan today. Leaders in early Indian cricket were very interesting. There had even been a chat of bringing in Douglas Jardine to be their first ever captain, as he was born in India. And then it was offered up as a token to rich men like Vizzy. Polly Umragar could bat, but was seen as soft. Tiger Patudi swaggered into the game, but could never make the runs that everyone wanted because of a car accident that affected his eyesight. Ajit Wadaka wasn't as rich as Vizzy, as English as Jardine, as good a bat as Umragar, or some kind of ideal package of all of them like Patudi. But he captained in nearly half of his tests, and his first three series resulted in three straight Indian wins. India had never even won two in a row before that. Under Wadaka, they could beat England, but what he helped set up allowed them 12 years later to beat the world. It's got that away and that's going to be it. It's going through for the boundary. Nobody bothering to chase it. Abidali cutting Lacoste away for four and giving India victory here in the Oval Test match. 174 for six. A victory to the tour inside by four wickets. Thanks for listening to Double Century. This podcast was made entirely possible by our supporters at Patreon. The link is in the show notes if you'd like to support us into the future. This show was written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. It was co-written by Max Wiggins, who also did the original research. Additional research and fact-checking was by Abhishek Mukherjee. And our producer is Nick McCorriston. Thank you so much for listening. But if you do like this show, one of the best ways that you can help support us is just simply by sharing it on social media or rating and reviewing it in your favorite podcast apps. If you like my work and want to follow it more, there is a link in the show notes to Linktree, which will show you where I do, I don't know, TikToks and Instagrams and YouTube and Twitter and other podcasts. Double Century is my podcast about the history of the game, but I have another podcast called Red Inca, which is on the current game. Come over and hear us talking about when Faf Duplessis is topless or why T20 cricket is broken. Red Inca can be found where you listen to your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.